1: If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
2: Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
3: Nerds, 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 hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am that woman, that host, she who would love to talk about Euripides and his plays for the rest of time, but who won't, because you will need more than that, and I can accept it. Anyway, I'm Liv. Euripides. Let's keep on with my beloved playwright for another episode, or two, maybe two. Because the Helen is so interesting, and unique, and weird. And I love it. I'm keeping this intro short because we have a lot of play to get through, so where were we? Helen was brought to Egypt before the Trojan War even started. Paris, actually, abducted and brought to Troy a fake, a ghost, an eidolon created by Hera to trick him, to punish him for picking Aphrodite. Maybe to punish Aphrodite, too. Meanwhile, the real Helen is a strong and brilliant woman who feels the full weight of all that's happened in her name, and who just wants to go home with her husband, Menelaus, who she's longed for for the 17 years she's been in Egypt who she truly loves. In Egypt, she's being pursued by the new king, Theoclymenus, who took over after his father, Proteus, died. Proteus had taken good care of Helen. Her life had been fine there. Theoclymenus wants to marry her, whether she likes it or not. And then, well, Menelaus rolled up. Helen spends so much time and energy and raw emotion trying to convince him that she is actually his wife and that actually she's been in Egypt the whole time, but he has trouble believing her because as far as he knows, his wife, Helen, is back in the cave where he left her with his men after they were shipwrecked on the shores of Egypt. Until a servant arrived with frantic news. Helen is gone from the cave, gone where they don't totally know, but it seems like she flew up to the sky. This is episode 175. First he made us feel for Agamemnon, and now Menelaus is sexy? Euripides is Helen. The servant has just told Menelaus of Helen's disappearance from the cave where he left her protected not long ago. He tells him of the words she spoke before she disappeared, how she spoke of the horrors of the war, how she was brought there by Hera's schemes, how Paris never had the real Helen to begin with, how she was returning to her father in the sky. And when the servant finished speaking these words of ghost Helen, disappeared Helen, he sees the real Helen standing right there in front of Menelaus. And, well, he says, Oh, hello, Leda's daughter. So you're here? I was just telling how you'd gone away to nestle with the stars. I didn't know that you could fly. The servant doesn't know what he's saying. He believes that this is the same Helen he just saw, apparently, fly up into the sky? Menelaus, though, now understands. Now he believes this Helen, who's been standing before him, begging him to believe her, begging him to accept that she is his wife, begging him to show that he still loves her, and showing him that she still loves him, begging him to take her home. He says, "'Her words have turned out true.' This is the day of happiness I longed for, when I can finally take my Helen in my arms. And while this part is super fucking nice and cute, Helen is so, so happy. She's so happy to see him, so happy to throw her arms around him. She's just so, so happy to have her husband back. And Menelaus feels the same. He tells her that he has so many things to say, he doesn't even know where to start. Helen's almost crying with happiness. She can't get over her relief, her delight, that she has her husband there with her, finally. It's so fucking lovely and emotional and romantic that Menelaus even says outright, quote, The past is gone. The god once took you away from me, but leads you now to a different life. A better future. Like, he just believes and accepts everything. He believes her. He understands that it was all the will of the gods. That the woman who spawned the whole war wasn't her. That none of this was her fault. That she caused no deaths. That it wasn't even her body. He just accepts it and is immediately willing to move on to start their lives together fresh and new. And not only that, but when Helen once again exclaims how happy she is, he replies, quote, Yes, be happy. I pray the same as you. We two are a team. If one is sad, so is the other. <laughs> Which is how we get the title of today's episode, because I thought Euripides really stretched it by having us sympathize with Agamemnon back in Iphigenia at Aulis, but I am actually smitten with Menelaus now, and frankly, that is absolutely absurd. And I love it. This is romantic, in a way that so very few other Greek plays are. It is about their relationship, their love, their reunion. They keep talking, and honestly, Menelaus just keeps being more and more lovely, and Euripides just keeps proving he can write pretty fucking healthy romantic relationships between a man and a woman, and isn't that refreshing. Menelaus says to Helen, you have me and I have you. I have lived through so many dawns of suffering, but now I see the light. Euripides is writing a couple that are equal. Like, Menelaus is just repeatedly emphasizing not only the love and affection he has for his wife, but the respect. He is calling them a team implying they are equals in their relationship, and while my mind is exploding from the sheer ancient Athens of it all. (sighs) With this romantic and beautiful reunion somewhat out of the way, or certainly the initial thrill dissipating into a comfortable affection and general happiness, now Menelaus is interested in knowing how, exactly, things came to be as they are. And I mean, fair. He's got a lot of information to take in, and frankly I'm impressed he came around as quickly as he did, even if it definitely wasn't immediate. How did you get here? he asks Helen. Helen, though, would much rather not revisit the past. How she got to where she is and everything that happened in between. She tries, though not very hard, to keep him from asking her. But ultimately she recognizes that it's a story that needs to be told. She finally says quite adorably quote, "curse that story which i'm about to tell" begins her story to Menelaus, and, well, yet again this is where we get some really good lines because I don't know if I've made it clear, but Euripides was a really good writer. (laughs) Quote, The ship didn't fly to the bed of that foreign young man. My desire didn't fly to adultery. The story continues, but it's one we've already heard at the beginning of the play, during Helen's own monologue. It was Hermes who brought her there, but at the will of Hera all because Paris chose Aphrodite in the contest, the judgment of Paris, that damned golden apple. He determined that Aphrodite was the fairest and Hera wasn't having it. They speak of all that's happened, of Helen's mother back at home, of her death. They speak of Hermione, their daughter, alive but mourning her mother's choices, or rather the ghost of her mother's choices. They talk of her brothers, also dead of grief, Then the servant chimes in. He wants to know what he's missing. He sees their happiness, their relief, but he doesn't understand. So they explain it to him, and we get the brilliant line, We suffered for no reason? For a cloud? Yes, Greeks and Trojans, you suffered for a cloud. Because the gods are fickle as fuck. That much Euripides wants to make very, very clear. There is no reverence for them here. The servant, the messenger, is happy for the couple. He speaks of his memories of them back in Sparta, of their relationship, before Menelaus asks him to return to the men at the caves and tell them the news, and that they should continue to wait there, to wait out whatever challenges he still has to face there in Egypt, to wait there so that they might escape together if they need to. And they will need to. Before the servant messenger goes, though, he speaks of prophecy. He's angry at the prophets who led them to Troy in the first place and kept them there, Calchas, back at the very beginning of the war, and the Trojan Helenus, the prophet during the war. He's not a fan of prophecy. Quote, No one gets rich from sitting beside the prophet's fire and doing nothing. Forethought and brains can tell the future best. You can't blame this guy for being a little bitter. He's just lived through the Trojan War, seen who knows how many of his friends and family die all over this woman who he's just learned was a fucking cloud. So the easiest and most rational thing to do here is to blame the prophets who led them astray. Like... Calchas told the Greeks they had to sacrifice Iphigenia at Aulis so that they could have a bit of wind, but somehow he didn't know that all along the Helen they were going after was a divinely created cloud. So much for the voice of prophecy. But with the messenger gone, Menelaus and Helen are left to continue catching up on all they've missed, having been away from each other for 17 years. Helen wants to know about what Menelaus has been through, but the wound is still too fresh, so he doesn't want to go into much detail. And who can blame him? Instead, he tells her simply that the war went on for ten years and he's been sailing around the sea, unable to reach home, for another seven after that. Helen is sympathetic and kind to Menelaus. Honestly, now that they know they're not mistaken, that the person they're each standing in front of is actually their long-lost spouse... They're both so fucking lovely to each other. Like, they really just missed each other, and now it's just nice to be together, to talk about what the other has gone through, to talk about how happy they are to be finally reunited. People have told me how lovely their relationship is in this play, but I think I had to read it to believe it. Because, I mean, it's Helen and Menelaus. They're not exactly my go-to examples of a romantic, happy couple who's just loving and devoted. But hey, I should have more faith in Euripides, because if anyone could do it and make it believable, it is him. But we're only halfway into this play, so things can't stay good forever. Also, yes, I'm sorry, we're only halfway into the play in episode three. I promise this won't be six episodes. Four. Max. It's too good, is all. Now, though, we're nearing the drama, the excitement, the thing that will make this a Greek tragedy, and not just a romantic story of lovers reuniting. They begin to speak about leaving Egypt together. And for all Helen was begging him to realize who she was, for all she was dreaming of seeing Menelaus again, hoping and praying and worrying over him. Now that he's here, she doesn't know how she can possibly get out of Egypt with Theoclymenus after her. Instead, she wants Menelaus to escape without her, to save himself, because if Theoclymenus were to catch them, he would certainly kill Menelaus. They talk about this for a long while, a beautiful and quick exchange of words, as Helen tries to convince Menelaus that he should run, that her fate is already tied to Theoclymenus. But she also tells him how bad it will be for her, that her marriage to the man would just be rape. She's very explicit, and Menelaus is Horrified, he can't face the idea that he will leave her there after finally reuniting with this Helen, the Helen who's loved him all along like he's loved her. So, they start to plot and plan about how they could get away from Theoclymenus and Egypt together. There's just one big problem. Theoclymenus' sister, Theonoe is a very powerful prophetess. She will have already seen that Menelaus is back and will see what they plan before they can even have it fully fleshed out.
0: Live Nation presents Concert Week,
3: Helen and Menelaus continue to talk about how they might be able to escape Egypt together. Maybe they could go to Theonoe before she has a chance to tell Theoclymenus that Menelaus is even in Egypt, Helen wonders. Maybe they can persuade her not to tell him. Menelaus asks if they're able to convince her, would they then be able to leave? With her, definitely, Helen says. Without her, no. It would be impossible. You should talk to her then, Menelaus offers, because she's a woman. And Helen replies, well, yeah, obviously I'll be the one to talk to her. And what if it doesn't work? Helen tells him that if it doesn't work, that's it. He'll die and she'll be forced to marry Theoclymenus. Which is when Menelaus reacts with a touch of his usual personality. He's not into the idea of having her marry Theoclymenus, and so instead, Helen swears that she will die. If Menelaus dies, die by the same sword that kills him and lie next to him. This is a Greek tragedy, after all. We must have higher stakes, more drama and excitement, and a touch of a woman killing herself. Just the idea of it, though, hopefully. Still, keeping to the new Menelaus, he adds that he will do the same. If she dies, he will die too. Because if we have to have the threat of suicide, let's at least make it equal. It's probably sad and maybe problematic to think this, but I think I still find it nice. I mean, the threat of suicide is never good, but just the idea that even in this bit, Euripides makes clear that in this play, Helen and Menelaus are equals, no matter what. It's so rare that I'm forced to love it. And speaking of their devotion to each other and Euripides really messing with gender roles in the most satisfying and meaningful of ways, from here... Menelaus launches into a speech about what they plan to do and how it intersects with what he's already gone through. Quote, we'll struggle in a mighty contest. The prize is bed with you. Come one and all, I will not shame the glory won from Troy, nor when I come to Greece will I be shamed. I, who robbed Thedas of her son Achilles and watched when Ajax killed himself and Nestor losing his son... Then shall I flinch to die for my own wife? I will not. This equation of Helen's potential death alongside Achilles, Ajax, even Nestor's son, is meaningful. Every other interpretation of the Trojan War has her as a villain, in one way or another. Sometimes a sympathetic one, sure, but always ultimately one of the reasons for the war, whether she liked it or not. She is no Achilles, no Ajax, no Nestor. She is Helen, the cause of all their troubles. But not here. Here, Menelaus loves his wife so much that not only will he die for her, but he will die for her and equate it to the death of the best heroes of Greece. And just as the chorus chimes in to add their sympathy, to hope for an end of the curse that hangs over Menelaus's family line, Helen announces that she hears Theonoe coming out that it's too late. She must know that Menelaus is there, but that he should hide all the same. Quote, though you survived a barbarian Troy, you'll die upon a barbarous sword right here. I'm done for. Theonoe joins the others on stage. It's not clear whether Menelaus tries to hide or if they determine it's futile. Theonoe's presence is very intentional and likely a juxtaposition to Cassandra. She walks on stage and owns it. She is confident and certain of herself. She is a prophetess who hasn't been affected like Cassandra. She is still on her home soil. She holds the power and it's impressive. Euripides is making her out to be someone respected, revered. She begins by speaking to her attendants of what they will do with the tomb, speaking of ritual. Before, she turns to Helen and says, plainly, So, Helen, what about my prophecies? Your husband Menelaus is right here, without his ships, without your replica. She goes on. She expresses sadness for Menelaus' plight, how he doesn't know whether he'll live or die, whether he'll ever reach home. She tells him that the gods will debate about his future, that even Hera, who started it all with the Eidolon, now hopes for Menelaus to have a safe journey home with Helen. Hera wants this because she wants the whole of Greece to know that her Helen was a fake, that the real one was never involved with Paris at all. She wants it to spite Aphrodite. Then Theonoe says what they're all thinking. "'It's up to me whether she gets her wish.' Either I tell my brother you are here and ruin you, or else I side with Hera and save your life by hiding you from him. Helen jumps in after this, begging Theonoe not to tell her brother. She reminds her of how she got there in the first place, that Proteus, Theonoe's beloved and good father, agreed to keep Helen safe during the war explicitly so that Menelaus could come back for her after, that he agreed to this, and that it was the will of the gods. Theonoe is a priestess first, Helen reminds her, and she should adhere to the agreements of her father before the wicked machinations of her brother. She asks Theonui to help her return home, keep her husband alive, help her get her life back in Sparta, clear her name, and help her daughter, who's now ruined by the believed actions of her mother. Help all of us, Helen is begging of Theonui. The chorus turns to Menelaus, asking what he will say to plead for their lives. But he won't kneel. He won't beg for his life. He says that if he did that now, it would shame Troy. That he wasn't a coward then, and it would shame them if he became one now. It's kind of nice, this feeling like he doesn't want to shame Troy, or what's left of it. It's honourable. Instead, he says he will just say what is true. "'I am a stranger and a guest.' I ask for my own wife back, as is right and proper. Then he turns to the grave of Proteus, where all the action of the play has been taking place. He speaks directly to the dead king. He tells him everything he said to Theonoe that he just wants his own wife back. She wants to go with him, and they have every right to be together and to be allowed to leave. Then, he adds, that if they are not permitted to leave, he will not only duel Theoclymenus to death, but if it comes to it, both he and Helen will die there, right on top of Proteus' tomb, tainting it with their blood. He tears up as he speaks of this. It isn't what he wants, but it is what they feel is necessary if it comes to it. But then he stops himself from crying, reminding himself to be strong now. He finishes, quote, If you want to kill us, do it. We'll die as heroes. Better yet, obey me. Then you'll be good, and I will get my wife. And Theonui agrees to help them. She agrees that what they say is right. Not only is it the right thing to do to let them leave, but it's what her father would do, and she will honor him. She adds that in doing this, her brother will believe that she is doing wrong, but in truth, she is turning him towards piety, forcing him to do what is right, and thus, it's the right thing all around. She won't help them, though, beyond this. She makes that clear. She will stand back and let them do what they need to do, and she will not tell her brother what is happening, or that Menelaus is even there in Egypt. That is how she will help them. She adds that they should pray to Aphrodite and then to Hera to help them in what they need to do. To Aphrodite for their marriage and to Hera asking her to keep her mind where it's been decided already to let them finally go home together. With Theonui confirmed to help them by keeping her mouth shut, Helen and Menelaus begin to plan how they will escape from Egypt. It won't be easy. They don't have a ship and they don't know the land well enough to escape that way, even if they were able to get a chariot to help them. Instead, Helen has an idea, which she begins by saying, quote, Listen, in case a woman can be smart. I'm choosing to take this as irony because this entire play up to this point has proven that women can be smart, very smart, particularly Helen, and Theonoe for that matter, and even the woman at the beginning who told Menelaus to get the hell out of there. Euripides knows women can be smart, and it's proven here, because Helen's idea is this. What if they pretended that Menelaus had died? What if he died in name, but not in truth? Menelaus agrees, though reluctantly. Seems like bad luck. But he wonders what Helen's plan is exactly, besides pretending that he's dead. Helen, of course, though, has thought it through. Because she's an absolute badass in this play. She explains that she will mourn her husband publicly, cut her hair, tear her cheeks, and wail before the king. She will play it up. She will convince him that her husband has died. But that's not all, of course. She will also ask him to allow her to give Menelaus a proper burial. She will tell him that Menelaus died at sea and that she wishes to give him this burial at sea. That this is what she needs to do in order to be ready to marry him. But, very specifically, she will tell Theoclymenus that all burials in Greece are done at sea. And thus, she must do the same for Menelaus. With a ship to be given by Theoclymenus for this reason. It's a good plan, and Menelaus loves it. He adds that he will have his surviving men ready, swords held high, that they'll be prepared to help in whatever way they can, and join the couple on the ship when they're needed. But, he adds, who will you say told you about my death? You, Helen replies. Her idea is that Menelaus will pretend to be one of his own men, the sole survivor of the shipwreck that killed Menelaus and all his other men. Of course, he's already dressed like he survived a shipwreck. That's exactly what happened. All he has to do is pretend to be someone else. Someone with news of the famed king of Sparta's death at sea. With this decided, Helen announces that she will go inside and begin... She will cut her hair and tear her cheeks while Menelaus waits outside, still by the tomb, where he will find some protection should Theoclymenus find him before she has a chance to return. She theorizes as to how it will go. Two endings are possible. Either she's caught and they will both die, or she'll succeed and they'll both finally return home. She prays to Hera and then to Aphrodite to help her with this plan. But to Aphrodite, she doesn't hold back. She doesn't seem to fear the goddess at all. A plan I'm not sure is a good one, but I don't blame her. If she can't hold back. To Aphrodite, she says, quote, You've hurt me quite enough before. You gave my name, if not my body, to barbarians. But if you want to kill me, let me die in my own country. Why are you never sated with wickedness, deceit, and tricks, and lust, and charms that spill the blood of families? You'd be the sweetest of the gods to humans if you were less excessive. That's the truth. What a fucking amazing speech. Directed right at a goddess. A powerful goddess. Telling her off for all her bullshit. I fucking love the way Eubaripides handles the gods. He's not afraid of them. He sees through their bullshit and the nonsense. Honestly, sometimes these plays sound a bit like my podcast. Fuck the gods. They've been awful one too many times. (laughs) With these words to Aphrodite, Helen enters the palace to prepare herself for their plan. Menelaus and the chorus are left outside, where the chorus sings a song of lamentation for the troubles the couple is facing. They sing of Helen, her sad fate. They sing of Troy, the good people destroyed by the Greeks. They sing of Paris, a Trojan they don't have any sympathy for. They sing of what he did stealing the false Helen away and bringing her to a foreign land, destroying her marriage, all led by Aphrodite. Then they sing of the war, the grief and sadness, the dead Greeks, the cliffs and the sea, the false prize that was Helen's idolon. They sing of Menelaus's travels, how he ended up getting stuck there in Egypt. They sing, quote, What mortal can think it all through and explain what is God, what is not God, and what is in between? Ugh, good line! Once more they sing of Helen's parentage, how Zeus forced her mother Leda in the form of a swan. They sing of her reputation in Greece, quote, treacherous, trustless, immoral, and godless. They sing of war broadly, quote, they're fools who win glory in war by stabbing and thrusting with spears, stupidly seeking an end to their labors in death. If the contest of blood is the judge, there will never be an end to the conflicts between cities, between humans. It's clear, Euripides is speaking of all wars now, just the idea of them, the way humans always need to fight one another to the death of how blood seems to be always the answer Quote, "like lightning from zeus the fire of killing fell down on the walls and you must bear pain upon pain poor suffering woman we pity your life" and when the chorus finishes their song with this line We finally meet the tyrant king of Egypt, the reason for their continued sadness, their continued fear and grief. Theoclymenus walks on stage. Thank you for listening to this play. So good. One thing that Ash pointed out in their notes, which again, huge thanks to Ash for their help in researching this play for me, is that what makes it so much more powerful is to consider the tragedy in terms of the collateral damage. Everything that's happened beyond their control. They lost 17 years of their lives. That means that Helen's mother, her brother's all dead and she has to just go home and face that. It's happened ages ago now for the people in Sparta, but it's a fresh wound for Helen. Meanwhile, their daughter Hermione has grown 17 years since they last saw her. She wasn't a baby when Helen and Menelaus left, so she's probably in her early 20s now, which is so old for women in this ancient time, at least in terms of them still being single and childless. Helen, meanwhile, is now probably in her 40s, and she's lost that many years to thinking about what's been happening in her name, imagining the horror of the war all for her, while she just waited so far away, knowing the truth, knowing she had nothing to do with any of it. The tragedy is the loss, the secondary loss. Not so much the loss in terms of death, but the loss of one's own life. All the things they could have experienced together in that time. All the years they could have had with their daughter and their beloved king of Sparta. Just all of it. Whew. Well, as you might have guessed, this play is going to run into four episodes. I always try to make sure plays cap out at three, but this one is so interesting and good and beautiful and frankly, I just want to share too much of it with you all. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Honestly, sometimes it's uh, difficult to decide whether these kinds of episodes are all for me or whether you guys do actually appreciate knowing this much detail about the best of the Greek plays. So I don't know, why don't you let me know? There aren't a lot of myths that I haven't covered yet, so plays are going to be coming up more and more, though I try to spread them out in terms of other stories in between. But specifically, this one is just really great and beautiful and the women are awesome and have so many great things to say. It wouldn't be doing justice if I were to rush through it. So next week... The finale, to Euripides Helen. And after that, though, we're diving into a story of the underworld, one I know you will all be excited about, have asked about, one that I have not remotely done justice. But that's for later. You'll also have seen by now that I'm running a bonus series in collaboration with the podcast network Q-Code. They have a new fiction podcast, a rom-com, all about the Olympian gods and specifically... Cupid. It's called, well, Cupid. It's set in a modern world and it's fun and sweet and I think you all will really enjoy it. And every week I'm releasing a bonus episode where I break down the mythological characters and reference made in the show. It's fun, so check out those bonus episodes if you're so inclined and check out Cupid too. Cupid episodes come out Tuesdays wherever you get your podcasts and my bonus episodes come out Wednesdays. Let's Talk About Mid Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things. Honestly, everything. She's absolutely the best. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Thank you all for being cool and lovely listeners. Fuck, I love Euripides. was he so amazing? Why was he so interested in women's stories? Women's voices? I want to know what was going through his head. I am live and I love this shit clearly
0: Live Nation presents Concert Week